Welcome back to a new episode of Chipping Away, where your hosts are Kashan Durga, TQ and Journeys of South Asia. It's archaeology, history, anthropology, art history, oh, you name it, we discuss all that. And you know of our series under Chipping Away called as Elementals. It is a series where we discuss various elements in nature and its connection with human life, or how the anthropomorphization of these elements has rendered through history and archaeology. Today, in Elementals, we are launching into a discussion on another element, that is water. We encounter water in various shapes and forms, may it be through rain or lakes, riverine systems, or even the sea. Today, we are going to look at water in a particular form and how we interact with water as humans and how this interaction is multifaceted. Today's episode will focus on one aspect of water and that is rivers. What is the role rivers played in making us human? Or what is their cultural symbolic presence in our societies and cultures? So in this episode, you will know about what rivers did and what rivers still continue to do. Current news events around water, flooding and excessive rainfall in South Asia has garnered our attention. And it is the need of the hour to critically look at water, other ecosystems that are dependent on water, and the water cycle in general, and how we have meddled with all of these things and left a lasting imprint of the anthropomorphic intervention. True. And at the end of the day, the past is a key to the present and likewise. So to understand what role rivers could have played in the past, we need to understand their present state. To help us through that journey, we have with us today Dr. Shilpa Dhake, a senior urban fellow at the Indian Institute of Science, Education and Research, Mohali, who's worked on various aspects of the river Godavari in Nashik city in Maharashtra, India. Hi, Shilpa. Hi. Hi, Durga. Hi, Akash. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no. Thank you for being here with us. So, Shilpa, what do you do? I interact with rivers in multiple ways through ethnographic fieldwork, through my research, through my community engagement activities, specifically in the city of Nashik, where my doctoral research is situated. And it's not only river, but more broadly, various forms of water, how they shape society and how people interact with multiple forms of water in a number of ways. I just finished my thesis, which is on Godavari River in Nashik City, which is a medium-sized town in the state of Maharashtra in India. And the river originates from around 30 kilometers from the city itself. So it's the first urbanized center which the river is sort of encountering in its journey. So in Nashik, I'm sort of looking at how through various governmental visions, how river has been transforming and how that transformation is being experienced by people who are living along the river and the city itself and how then also river is getting animated and reacting towards all these human interventions. I'm trying to bring in the agency of the river in the social science discussion and how then river becomes not only a biophysical material agent but it becomes a political agent as well which also triggers various political and social movements and engagements in society. So looking through the various ecological enactments of river in the form of algal blooms or in the form of extreme levels of flooding or water scarcities. So how these very material changes of the river are getting experienced by people there and how then they're reacting towards these ecological changes. 
This is interesting. I mean, if we look at it through time, rivers have been a fundamental grounding agent for human civilization. Some of the earliest towns and cultures and maybe even settlements have originated along the banks of rivers, be it the Indus Valley civilization, be it in Egypt, be it in China, be it in the Middle East. We see that rivers form the catalyst for civilization. And I guess it's always been an exchange between how humans react to the river and how the river has reacted to humans. So it's been a dialectical relationship between the humans and the rivers. But I think over the period of time, we have forgotten this dialectical engagement with the river. And we had tried to control the river in a way that the river can be managed and manipulated for human needs. And that manipulation has become exploitation over the course of time. But the inherent nature of the river is sort of overpowering all these ways of exploitation. And it is reacting in different ways. Extreme flooding is one form of it, but also changes in the water's quality in terms of algal blooms is also one very evident in the case of Nashik itself. The process in which uh, the river enacts itself, I think that's where it is important to understand the dialectical relationship with the river and the society also, which many of the processes in the present times of urban development or policy making are not taking into account these processes of reverse agency. So I think that's where the importance of highlighting the agency of river comes into picture. That's a very important point about anthropogenic activity and control really struck me. And I wonder if you could speak more to this aspect of anthropogenic activity interfering with the natural course of river, at least in case of Godavari and what is your observation or findings around such activities? So in my research, I have gone back into history, tracing how the physical manipulation of river began with various kinds of infrastructures, starting from the dam construction, or even as the civilization of Nashik sort of started growing, the various governing bodies which were ruling or which were in power in Nashik, they began threading out various streams of water. For example, the water supply system emerged with pipe water supply system, then management of wastewater water that very recently it emerged threading of different flows of water emerged and with that the riverscape which is combination of not only water but also sediments various aquatic biodiversity so all these entities which are there in the river they are also engaging with these infrastructure manipulations as well so in a way all these infrastructure manipulations in the form of dams or small wires which are being constructed for regulating water and channelizing it all these are becoming part of the river's body itself And once these various infrastructural entities are getting internalized by the river, then the basic nature, the way we have known rivers or we have studied rivers is also changing. So with the anthropogenic interferences, we try to put river into a fixed set of lines or fixed understanding of our own imagination of how rivers should flow. But we tend to forget that rivers are also living entities. They also internalize all these processes. And with this internalization, they are also constantly changing and evolving in nature. So all our constant efforts of controlling the river or harnessing the river for economic use have initially seemed to be fruitful. But over a long period of time, we tend to see how the intersection of the river as a body plus these infrastructure and plus society is sort of coming together to develop a new form of a river itself. 
So I think in the process of understanding how in the current era of Anthropocene, how these natural water bodies are constantly evolving and engaging with the human interventions. They are no more really natural as the sciences have termed them. They are also socio-natural. And I think you hit the nail on its head here in talking about ecology and the Anthropocene and interaction of humans. I wonder how we can study some of the interactions in the past with the river and with the growth of civilization. Looking at the modern interactions, how can we make some educated guess about the past societies and their interaction with rivers and other natural bodies of water? The city of Nashik evolved over nine silt mounds which were located around various meanders of the river. And the settlement was on these various silt mounds. That's how the old city of Nashik has evolved. But as the civilization evolved and developed and became more fixed in its form and in its structures, then the need of controlling the river or a need of managing the floods or the level of water emerged. In the past, if we try to sort of understand how rivers were fluctuating and then if we can sort of also link how people were moving and what were their movement patterns with the fluctuation, if we can sort of overlay these two activities of different entities, I think we would be able to make a better understanding of how humans were engaging with the river. Because when they were moving, they were not only moving in search of food, but they were also moving because of various ecological changes as well, wherever they were living. So I think a fluctuation of the river can be one of the major ecological marker which can sort of link the movements as well and how the changes in the course of the river also led to certain patterns of movement of civilization or societies in the past. That's an interesting perspective because some of the earliest evidences we have of human beings interacting with the Godavari in the vicinity of Nashik is from the site of Gangapur. So Gangapur, a Paleolithic rockarity, is very close to Nashik and was one of the first sites wherein they found stone tools made of basalt which is the local raw material there. Until then, in India at least, people didn't believe that entire region of the Deccan where you had the volcanic rock was ever occupied because they could never find or they could never imagine stone tools not being on quad site. So Gangapur was one of these instrumental sites in Indian prehistory because they found artifacts made on basalt. And we can assume that these people who made these stone tools were also as dependent on the Godavari then as people much later on, be it the Marathas, the colonial period, or be it all of us now. So that interaction that happened between man in prehistoric times is something that continues till the modern day in the same space. Yeah, true. Also, Gangapur is one site, but within the city itself, there's one more site of Chalcolithic period, if I'm not wrong. That's also a silt mound, and that mound in Marathi, it's called Zunya Mati Chigadi, which is old silt, old soils mound. And I think excavations were done by the Deccan College. They were very preliminary excavations. Things which I've heard from people who are living on this mound currently, because right now that mound is inhabited by uh, informal settlements. It's very heavily densely populated right now. But what I've heard that even now during floods or when the mound is getting eroded because of flooding, people still find coins or they still find pieces of pottery, old bricks. 
the excavation began in 1959 or 55 something around that period at that point of time i think uh, the mound wasn't inhabited it was totally in its natural form but people who were living nearby were suspicious of the archaeologists who were digging there and because of the suspicion the archaeologists weren't really welcome to do further excavations on that site and unfortunately though that particular mound is in archaeological survey of india's list of natural monuments there have been contestation going over it that archaeological of india should retract its identification as a natural monument or how to also conserve this natural monument generally in various parts of south asia you have a deification of rivers be the ganga or the yamuna so how is that interaction seen in the godavari so it's quite similar to what we hear about the northern rivers of the country the local traditions and the kind of mythological narratives which emerge from the field they suggest that the nashik was also recognized as kashi of the south kashi is also varanasi and people don't really call godavari godavari in nashik everybody refers to godavari as ganga and also if you trace the various mythological texts as well godavari is always referred to as ganga's elder sister and also if you look at various hindu rituals and how they are connected with the river one of the major narrative which comes in like people go to banaras to perform the last rites of their loved ones continuing that narrative the concept of doing last rite of their fathers in nashik along godavari is prevalent and of their mothers in banaras along ganga when you touched upon the point of reduced physicality or physical interaction with the river and interaction with the river water through the means of pipes canals or dams or dammed water or tap water is very interesting and could we probably try and uncover some of the mediatories that help us interact with the river and how they have affected the interaction one aspect would be spirituality but in a very restricted sense where we approach the physical river for a very selected ritualized performance and on the other hand the day to day interaction of people living in and around nashik with the physical water is through taps or through a mediator so i just wonder how this has shaped the views or attitudes for the river or the physicality of water even if we began by living along rivers but i think that connection which everybody so romantically talk about is somewhat distorted in the modern time with many more advancement in the way we look at rivers the way we perceive rivers or the way we scientifically engage with rivers as natural water bodies even all the cultural associations have become much more about the intangible entity of river and this is very much evident in the case of india where we worship rivers as goddesses but we don't really talk about the materiality of the river the way the material aspects of river is exploited through sand mining or through pollution through letting out the city's waste in the river we do worship on the other hand in intangibly we put rivers at a very high pedestal but when it comes to the physical engagement with the river tangibly we sort of disengage ourselves with these two bodies of rivers where one is tangible one is intangible so we are dependent on the river yes but the multiplicity of the engagement have been reduced to sort of looking at rivers as a resource only which is to, to be exploited for economic benefits and profit i like the way you bring out the distinctions between the anthropocentric 
and non-anthropocentric entities that are associated with reverse. And to that end, I wonder how the cultural conception around reverse has developed, especially in terms of narratives or literature around river and modification of landscape around the river in terms of building ghats for easy access to the river or temples, which accentuate the sacred nature of river perceived by the society associated with it. Could you talk a little more about that in context of Nashik or in general, the river? If you specifically talk about Nashik and Godavari, even if you just look at the maps, the way city has evolved over the period of time, even if you go back to the pre-colonial period as well, the center of the city has always been around the river and it's still the same. The center is still around the river. But the kind of land use or the kind of development in the current modern terms, if we can call it, the way settlement is emerging or changing in terms of the engaging with the river. If you just look at the ghats of Nashik, the ghats are located around two kilometers of a stretch, which is right now at the city center. Everything is looking towards the river. So it's become a central place for people to converge, meet, gather for various activities in addition to the religious activities. But now if you look at the upstream stretches where the city has now expanding and extending, there it is more about a gaze of the river and not really a physical intimate engagement with the water body. It's more about creating a grandeur of the image of the river and not really an engagement engagement and also sometimes very strangely many of these new constructions they have their back towards the river and they're letting all the waste sewage out in the river so even that tells us how the water body is sort of being perceived nobody really gather in these spaces though there are certain projects that are happening in nashik under the banner of riverfront development projects they are hardly being used as public spaces unlike the ghats which are quite central and which are already overcrowded and congested they're still being very heavily used by people but these new spaces, they're not used in the ways these ghats are being used. Because these ghats, they become the breathing space in a way in the city. But also the whole architecture around it invites you to assemble, gather in these spaces, which the modern architecture in terms of real estate and other buildings, they're not really giving that scope for people to engage with the river in these manner. And this has been changing because we are trying to replicate the ideas of engaging with the river through infrastructures. And we try to see rivers as something which can be dominated, which can be manipulated for human benefit. So this manipulation overshadows, overpowers the way the fluid engagement, which the previous architectural engagements might have encouraged. If you compare it with today's architecture and what was there before, they definitely had the fluidity in these spaces. If you look at the ghats, the previous ghats which were built in 17th and 18th century in Nashik, they had this porosity where they sort of carved out the ghats, the steps within the riverbed itself. So they didn't really interfere with the materiality of the river also. The river had the freedom of flowing the way the river wanted to flow. But with coming of various modern materials of concrete, this sort of hinders the fluidity of the river as well. That's what happened in Nashik as the ghats which were there before, they are now concretized. Even the riverbed is concretized there. And there is a totally a disconnection between the underground network of water flows and the surface water streams, which was very much required for the Godavari to stay flowing throughout the year. Also, the way architecture has evolved hinders our engagement with the river in many ways. 
and this is specifically majorly because of coming up of various infrastructures which we see as something important for economic growth and to sort of manipulate and harness from the river in many ways your point also strikes the chord that there are recreational structures developed around the rivers such as in case of godavari it is goda park where you have a jogging or walking track for people to enjoy the view of the river as well as be in physical proximity with the river and maybe to play with the tangibility aspect of the river as well but as you pointed out some projects which are labeled as developmental projects around the river actually hinder the whole ecosystem of the river along with altering its course and things like that and i wonder to what extent the modification of landscape is on the level of modifying the cultural or sacred landscape in nashik the modernization of the sacred landscape is only happening with introduction of concrete because anywhere in small indian cities like nashik if you go for people in even for policy makers concrete has become like a symbol of development because it's quite visible and concrete has also a different appeal to it as well because if the city is getting funding from the state government or the central government concrete becomes a easier way to show development that something is being built from the money which is coming in the city so that has happened in nashik as well the majority of the concretization has happened in the religious stretch apart from that the way religious festivals or things like kumbh mela have transformed even that sort of reflects upon modernization of the riverscape because initially it was merely a religious gathering in a way but now if you look at the kumbh mela of 2015 which happened in nashik it was more about branding the city commodifying the city marketing the city basically for getting more investments in the city getting more capital in the city so even religious commodification if you can call it is also happening with river in the backdrop the kumela happens along the rivers and it happens at four different cities across india at a period of 12 years but with this transformation of the event itself it is like a mega event which is very well organized in multiple ways it is branded very heavily it is advertised very heavily and it is becoming more tourist oriented to get more people from abroad for getting more foreign capital so this way the cultural associations are becoming modernized or trying to engage with the narrative of the modern lifestyle so to support these activities even a number of things are emerging so nashik is also famous for its vinyats so in 2015 kumbh mela along with the branding of nashik as a city of kumbh the vinyats advertised nashik as a city of wine as well so there were specific tourist packages which sort of emerged which try to juxtapose the divine with the wine so all these things talk about how the city is trying to see certain things as modernization of the city in the similar lines the various vinyas they are also organizing various wine festivals as well so these festivals are becoming like a new modern way for nashik to engage with the larger world and to sort of tell its own unique identity in different ways but here the river which is important both for the religious associations as well as the farming of the grapes required for wine production is going into the backdrop but the privatization of it the commodification of it is coming in the foreground 
in many of these conversations where people are talking about river centric conservation measures and activities for them the reference point is in the past around marathas where the ghats were and i totally agree with them at certain points whether they said that the peshwas built these ghats keeping in mind where the water sources were and all the ecological conditions yes but if we don't acknowledge that even that was a domination over nature over river we would be losing out on how we have reached at this point of stage where we are so much exploiting our natural resources that was the beginning of the exploitation in one way at a very massive scale and if you sort of also extend that narrative to modern times where in the past people have been gathering along rivers maybe in small numbers in paleolithic time and that has sort of expanded and increased in the later years in earlier periods these groups were also moving they were not really sedentary at one point of time but with coming of so much of technological interventions and innovations we became static along the river and along with our fixity along the river also came the need to fix the river in many ways and that's where the ideas of dams the ideas of creating bridges the idea of creating pipe water supply all these things come into picture the need for all these infrastructure arise from these fixities whereas river is so much fluid and we are ignoring the fluidity of river in many ways and we have to look at the history very critically that how we have engaged with the river in the past and how that fixity is sort of dominating our vision and perception towards the river thank you shilpa that was really an insightful discussion and i know we cannot really stop here because there is so much to talk about about how we interact with the river how we politicize some of the spaces and how we extract the river system out of its natural or ecological setting and tame it or make it sort of synthetic entity in our cities and spaces so we will return again in a matter of 15 days to discuss more about politicizing the landscape around the rivers and we will have with us shilpa dahake talking to us about her project on godavari in maharashtra and rivers in general so stay tuned and don't forget to follow us on twitter and instagram at chipinawayind also hit a line or comments suggestions inputs about the podcast at chipinawayind@gmail.com we look forward to hearing from you and see you soon in a matter of 15 days so until then take care bye bye